Hello, everyone. My name is Megan Gibson. I'm the executive editor and the foreign editor at The New Statesman. I'm very pleased to welcome you all here today online and here at ODI. Today's panel discussion reflecting on the conflict in Ukraine and the arrival of Ukrainian refugees across Europe and how that has impacted broader attitudes, narratives, and policies towards refugees across the continent. And before we dive in, I just want to flag that for those of us who are joining us online, who would like an English to Polish translation, there should be a prompt button, a little globe icon on your screen that you can click now. So one year on from Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine, almost 5 million refugees have been registered for protection across Europe. For the most part, Ukrainian refugees have been welcomed from public and politicians alike. We've seen European leaders very quick to implement inclusive policies to welcome Ukrainians and make um, policy interventions that were very, very positive and welcoming. As we all know, this has marked a departure from ongoing discussions and attitudes about refugees and asylum in across Europe, which have been marked by a different tenor. So this raises a number of questions. One, how has the arrival of Ukrainian refugees impacted the political and public narratives around refugees in Europe? What impact has there been on the broader willingness to accept refugees? Has the arrival of Ukrainian refugees impacted wider policies and efforts to provide humanitarian assistance to other groups? And what opportunities exist to harness those positive narratives and opinions towards Ukrainians in order to influence broader narratives about refugees and asylum seekers in Europe. So to address those questions, I'm delighted to welcome a panel of experts focused on Poland, the UK and Europe more broadly. I'm gonna start first with introducing Karen Hargrave, who's joining us remotely. She's an independent consultant and research associate at ODI, focusing on migration and displacement. Karen's work covers a number of themes, including public attitudes towards refugees and migrants in Europe and across Africa. Today, Karen will speak about trends in Poland, drawing on research with ODI, looking at public narratives and attitudes in the country towards refugees and other migrants. Also focusing on Poland and also joining us remotely is Kamila Fukowska, a researcher at the University of Warsaw's Center for Migration Research. Since the beginning of the crisis of the Polish-Belarus border, she has been involved in the work of the research collective Researchers on the Border. Camilla will speak specifically about how the situation there and policy responses have developed since the arrival of refugees from Ukraine. And then joining us here today in London, we turn to Cinder Kudwala, who will reflect on the situation in the UK and the trends in public and attitudes and narratives here. As you know, everyone here, it's quite a hot political moment to be having this discussion in the UK. So Cinder is the director of the British Future, an independent, nonpartisan UK think tank and registered charity, which engages people's hopes and fears about integration, immigration, identity and race. He has previously worked as a journalist and in a range of other roles from Fabian Society to Macmillan. And finally, also joining us here is Lenka Dashanova will speak to public attitudes across Europe. Lenk is a research fellow at the European University Institute's Migration Policy Center in Florence, where she is part of the Observatory of Public Attitudes to Migration Project. 
Her research focuses on political behavior, public opinion, and individual attitude formation and con the conditions under which these attitudes emerge. Uh, there'll be time today for during the event for Q&A with the panel. We will take questions here in the room, but also from online. So if you're joining us online, please do enter your questions in the chat um, at any point, along with your name, organization, and the country from which you're um, residing in. And our team will pass them up to me here. We can, we can ask, put them to the panel. And we also encourage you to tweet about the event. You, social media, you can use the hashtag refugee narratives, and you can tag ODI at ODI underscore global on Twitter. So I'm going to dive in. Karen, I'm going to go to you first. Based on your research with ODI, how has the arrival of Ukrainian refugees impacted the public and political narratives around refugees within Poland? And what has the impact been in terms of broader willingness to accept refugees? Thanks, Megan. I'm very sorry that I can't be there with you to join you in person today. I'm just going to bring up some slides if you bear with me a moment. Okay, so I'm going to be just sharing some reflections today really based on recent research with ODI looking at public net narratives and attitudes towards refugees and other migrants in Poland. I won't go into a huge amount of detail on the methodology for the sake of time, but very briefly, our research drew on a review of the literature and survey data, as well as a review of Polish language media sources and a number of key informant interviews. And it's important to say that the research also built on a lot of work that has already been done on this within Poland. So I just want to say a very big thank you to the many academics and other stakeholders in Poland who are so generous with their time and insights as we were undertaking the research, hopefully some of whom will be joining in the online audience today. So I want to take you back to February the 24th last year when it became clear almost immediately really that vast numbers of refugees from Ukraine were headed to Poland. And in the months that followed, there was a lot of commentary, both from outside, but also within Poland, pointing to an emerging double standard in terms of the welcoming policies, attitudes and narratives regarding Ukrainian refugees on the one hand, and those around other groups of refugees on the other hand. And to start with Ukrainians, today UNHCR estimates that over 1.5 million refugees from Ukraine have been registered for protection in Poland, though not all remain in the country today. And Ukrainians who fled to Poland last year joined many others who migrated following Russia's more limited invasion in 2014, who largely arrived through temporary labour migration pathways. And Ukrainian immigration to Poland post-2014 was effectively the first mass immigration in Poland's modern history. So it's estimated that before the recent escalation of conflict, around 1.3 million Ukrainians had already entered Poland. And on the eve of the Russian invasion last February, Polish attitudes towards Ukrainians were not necessarily effusive, but they leaned positive. But then as refugees from the conflict began to arrive, there was this huge outpouring of support. So we saw positive narratives across all levels of government, making very clear that Ukrainians would be welcomed in Poland. And this was pretty much echoed across all parts of Polish society, who very, very quickly, as we saw, mobilized to provide support. So in March last year, CBOS, who are a 
Polish Public Opinion Polling Institute found that an overwhelming 94% of Poles supported accepting Ukrainian refugees. And that figure dropped a little bit in the months that followed. But from around June last year, it stabilised at around 80% who are supportive of accepting Ukrainians. So, of course, there's no room for complacency about these attitudes. And of course, there are concerns among some Poles about the impacts of hosting Ukrainians in the longer term particularly in the context of high attention to inflation and the rising cost of living. But so far, at least, positive attitudes and narratives remain relatively resilient. And I think to fully appreciate the contrast with other groups, we really need to go back to a key turning point in 2015. So in the early 2000s, attitudes towards immigration and refugees in Poland were actually among the most positive in Europe. And before 2015, public debate on immigration was virtually non-existent, which is pretty unsurprising in the context then of relatively low immigration levels. But in 2015, immigration and refugees specifically shot up the political and media agenda. And that wasn't due to new refugee arrivals in Poland or even due to the mass immigration of Ukrainians around that time, but due to the so-called refugee crisis in Europe, which very quickly became the centrepiece of the Law and Justice Party's successful 2015 parliamentary election campaign. And a very distinctive set of narratives emerged during this time. They were echoed in mainstream and particularly in right-leaning media outlets. And you can see some examples there on the slide. And Mirroring narratives elsewhere in Europe and further afield, these narratives effectively characterise refugees from the Middle East and Africa, and particularly Muslim refugees, as a threat to Poland's culture, health and security. And this was framed very effectively by the Law and Justice Party as a story of us versus them. So an us that is deserving of security and the freedom to choose who to welcome in opposition to a them made up of threatening refugee others and European elites who are cast as trying to enforce their will on Poland. And there's a lot more that can be said there, and we do go into much more detail in the full report. But what was particularly stark was the way in which these negative narratives in 2015 correlated with a shift in public opinion. So the graph here shows data from CELOS again, tracking public opinion towards refugees throughout 2015 and into 2016. There's quite a lot going on here, but if you just look at the light blue line here, you can see how opposition to accepting refugees from countries affected by conflict jumps up from about 20% in May 2015 to over 60% by April 2016, a year later. And after that point, attitudes slowly grew more positive again. But what really endured was the way in which these narratives around refugees went on to shape the parameters of public debate. And they became particularly prominent again in 2021 in the context of arrivals from the Middle East and Africa to the Poland-Belarus border, which I know Camilla will be speaking to in much more detail in a moment. But very briefly on that. In terms of narratives, the situation there is in many ways a lot more complex than in 2015. But what was very notable was a very hardline policy stance from Poland's central government and highly securitized narratives that painted arrivals as a hybrid threat to Poland at the hands of Belarus. So in this context, it's really not very surprising that many pointed to a sharp difference just months later when Ukrainian refugees began arriving in Poland. And 
in terms of narratives from Poland's central government around other groups, not really much really changed with the arrival of Ukrainians. And if anything, as Ukrainian refugees began arriving in Poland, they were used as a rhetorical device to highlight a perceived contrast between Ukrainians as the archetypal good or genuine refugee and other groups of refugees arriving in Poland who are cast as economic migrants abusing Poland's hospitality. There's a good example here taken from a report from the Center of Migration Research in Warsaw. So you can see a meme here that was tweeted out by Poland's Territorial Defense Force on February the 27th last year, just days after the Russian invasion, with the caption, which roughly translates as, what's the difference between a refugee and a migrant? The picture says about a thousand words. And the demographics of Ukrainian refugees here, who have predominantly been women, children and the elderly, are used here really to reinforce this contrast of playing on stereotypes of vulnerability in comparison to an image of a mass of supposedly threatening young male arrivals from elsewhere. And what was particularly interesting is that as Ukrainians arrived, once again, we saw a story of us and them emerging in Poland, but this time with a difference in that Ukrainians were not painted as a threatening other, but really as part of an us standing together with Poles against Russian forces that really have for centuries posed a threat to Poland's own identity and existence. Now, I'm just going to speak also very briefly on public opinion. I know that Lenka is going to share some of MPC's new data looking at this question across Europe, so I don't want to preempt that. But what we did look at in our research were some data points from long-standing surveys in Poland that look at attitudes to immigration refugees, where part or all of the fieldwork last year was undertaken after refugees arrived from Ukraine. And what's interesting is that several of these data points actually show record high levels of positivity. So, for example, last year, the European Social Survey found that just under half of Poles felt that immigration made Poland a better place to live, which is the highest proportion recorded in any round of the survey. You can see another example here from Ipsos's annual World Refugee Day poll. So, in this figure, you can see responses to the question of closing Poland's borders entirely to refugees. And if you look just at the proportion of those opposed to closing the country's borders, so the dark blue line on the slide, you see a big jump up last year following the arrival of Ukrainians with three quarters of Poles opposed to cl closing the country's border. And on the face of it, this looks very much like Poles becoming much more accepting towards refugees on the whole following the arrival of Ukrainians. But I think it's important to say that it's effectively impossible here to disentangle whether this genuinely reflects a shift in attitudes towards other groups as well, or if it just reflects that Poles have become increasingly likely to associate the term refugee with Ukrainians towards whom they're overwhelmingly supportive. So it doesn't mean that there hasn't been any wider change in attitudes, but and we do actually know that attitudes were already warming, as you can see here before last year. But I think we do need to just be a little bit careful here not to overinterpret this upswing in positive opinion and certainly something to keep tracking over time. So finally, I just wanted to close with a few words looking to the future. So in terms of narratives, I think on the one hand, it wouldn't be a surprise, and it's certainly something we've seen from Poland's government in the past, to see the large number of refugees from Ukraine 
now hosted in Poland being used to justify a more closed approach to other groups. So essentially putting forward the argument that when it comes to refugees, Poland has more than done its part. And I think if there is going to be a reset in narratives in Poland, I think it would really need to be from the ground up. And I think that's where we can look to opportunities for actors who are trying, have for years really been trying to put forward more positive narratives around other groups. And I think the most important point there is we can look to how Poles really from all walks of life mobilized to help Ukrainian refugees and how that reflects a, really a very clear vision of a compassionate, welcoming Poland. And while, for example, attitudes are likely to be more mixed on the situation on the Poland-Belarus border, there is some data to suggest that many Poles are not necessarily enthusiastically behind some of the most hardline elements of the government's approach. So there may be some space for alternative narratives to find traction if framed carefully. And perhaps that's something I can speak to more later. So I'll finish there on that slightly more optimistic note. As I mentioned, there's much more detail in our full report, but I'll finish there for the sake of time and and to you that I can come back to in the Q&A, but I'll pass back to you, Megan, in London there. Thank you so much. You. Um, that was that was fascinating. And um, to build on some of the points you touched on there, we're going to go to Camilla now. Um, Camilla, drawing on your work on the Poland-Belarus border, how has the arrival of Ukrainian refugees impacted the wider policy landscape? Um, within Poland and efforts to provide humanitarian assistance to other groups. Hi, thank you. Um, <clears throat> thank you very much for the invitation. And I also showed a few slides uh, in my attempt to answer that question and give you a little bit of uh, also background to uh, whatever is happening on the Belarusian border. Do you see the slides now? Yeah, okay, great, uh, thank you. Uh, so one thing is important to keep talking about the Belarusian, Polish-Belarusian border because uh, what we've seen since um, last year, February last year, uh, is the focus shifted almost entirely to what is happening in Ukraine and uh, arrival of refugees from Ukraine, while not much changed on the Polish-Belarusian side. So we also need to highlight that, uh, that it is still all quiet at the EU eastern border, the border with Belarus. And, <clears throat> um, just a second. And yes, uh, uh, thank you, Karen, for bringing up this uh, so-called refugee crisis and reception in Poland. I just want to very briefly mention also on that. Um, uh, so uh, obviously, as you know, there was no to relocation of refugees and there was a parliamentary election when the refugee issue was politicized, mobilized and used as a, um, as a uh, uh, using the, uh, in, the uh, in the campaign uh, by minor and very major <clears throat> political figures. Uh, here on the poster, you see one of the very minor political figures that didn't enter the parliament, but also used this uh, Islamization uh, threat um, in his uh, in his uh, in his campaign. Uh, one one of his notes in the uh, top left is "No to Islamization of Poland," as it is uh, as if this was some sort of serious threat that we are facing. Uh, so just to give you a situation, uh, give you the the background of the situation that it wasn't. Um, the situation was changing very quickly um, towards very negative sense um, uh, towards refugees reception, uh, especially coming from uh, from the south, from Middle East. Um, <clears throat> and 
<clears throat> Another thing that was important to mention is that uh, the situation was evolving and already in 2016-18 on the Belarusian border, uh, we have witnessed first uh, documented pushbacks uh, on the Brest-Terrestal border crossing. Uh, that's been also quite well documented by the activists and researchers. Um, and you can also check out the reports of uh, Helsinki Foundation on this. A particular issue. These were people mostly coming from Chechnya, Dagestan, Ingushetia, uh, who were um, trying to cross the border, who were repetitively stopped, sent back um, by train uh, back to Brest. Um, <clears throat> and um, they had uh, several attempts of crossing the border, and uh, some of them uh, managed successfully to file their asylum uh, application. And what we have uh, since August 2021, uh, this is so-called humanitarian crisis. It is not a refugee crisis. Um, and it's a humanitarian crisis mainly because of the response of the government uh, that uh, is weaponizing on migrants and uh, militarized the border area, which effectively ended up in a humanitarian crisis. Uh, that means um, um, also attempts in legalizing illegality, uh, introducing state of emergency, so-called no-go zone or later on, uh, until the end of June 2022, when the construction of the border fence was uh, accomplished, and that um, supposedly should, uh, in, in, in the um, uh, discourse that is created by the government, the mainstream political party uh, and uh, media, uh, should stop the crisis, although it obviously did not stop anything. Um, and uh, um, there's been also amendments to the national law that uh, would attempt to legalize pushbacks. Uh, there's more on it in the reports of the border group and also uh, um, uh, um, organizations that are working on these issues like uh, Helsinki Foundation and uh, Association for Legal Intervention. You can all uh, check this also and, uh, and uh, get some details. And there's been also several attempts to criminalize the aid activities that are um, happening on the border because there's been um, uh, or, or mobilization of uh, civil society organizations, human rights defenders uh, to actually provide humanitarian aid to people who are crossing the border. And on the picture, you see how it looks like in the forest of Białowieża, uh, um, how people uh, are trying to, uh, to cross the border, how they are assisted also uh, by, the, by the activists. Um, there are some uh, things left on the, in the forest. Uh, uh, after uh, signifying their presence, and there's many many encampments like this in the Białowieża forest uh, still today. Um, so uh, this is very brief uh, overlook on the situation as it uh, started uh, in Poland in August uh, 2021, and it's still ongoing. And uh, I mentioned the no state of emergency and the no go zone. This is the uh, very uh, sketchy map that shows you how it looked like. So it was a territory of the uh, near nearing the border uh, from. Uh, between two to sometimes 12 kilometers uh, from the borderline uh, that you have restricted access uh, if you were not inhabitant uh, of this local area or you did not work there. So media uh, aid organizations, uh, um, international aid organizations were not allowed to enter this area. Uh, so that also means that there was uh, very little access of the public and very little knowledge of the public of what is happening on the border. Uh, these are some visual representations of how it looks like um, in the borderland area, uh, nearing the this no board, no no go zone or no entry zone. Um, and I just want to very quickly go through those pictures because uh, those are, these are the representations of descent uh, of the uh, local population activists on the my left side. So uh, one is coming from 
the local activists. It is their um, initiative to kind of talk about this issue and uh, visualize it also in the public spaces uh, locally. And uh, um, it says here what you've done to one of us, uh, uh, you, to one of uh, one of my brothers. You've done to me. It's a biblical quote. Uh, it's, it was put in uh, on the on the signs to um, on the signs in the public uh, nearing the Easter time uh, last year, <clears throat> in order to kind of bring this issue uh, uh, to the fore and discuss it also, uh, and also a protest against the construction of the wall uh, in one of the local uh, towns. Um, on the right, there is this uh, representation of the public government discourse uh, that uh, shows the unilateral support for whatever the government is doing. The um, the support for the armies present, the support for the border guards in their defense of the border. And it's very interesting because uh, the bottom uh, right picture uh, shows the sign um, that is, hand, uh, uh, on the, is, is on the fence of the um, local mosque in uh, one of the villages uh, that uh, small Tatar Muslim minorities living. And uh, it is also uh, the cemetery of the mosque is the burial place of a few victims, uh, a few people who died on the border. Uh, so it's, we see tension there. So there's like people who actually uh, are um, showing the support of like ostentatiously showing the support for the government policies, but yet at the same time, these are the Muslim community. So, uh, so th there is a clear tension uh, here also. And uh, in the middle, there's um, uh, a picture from local shop in the border area that collects stuff, uh, uh, donations for the Ukrainian arrival, arriving Ukrainian refugees. Uh, and that was uh, open in the public and uh, for everyone to, to uh, chip in something. Uh, so there, there's been a lot of uh, conflicting information and also uh, visible in, uh, in, the, uh, in the local areas. And uh, there's many more, but uh, obviously we cannot spend the whole time talking about it, but it's a fascinating topic also. Um, and we've been, uh, since uh, 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 spring last year, we've been collecting information from the local activists and, uh, and uh, uh, inhabitants uh, of their activities and their interactions with the services, with the border guards, with the police, with the army, uh, while they were attempting to uh, provide humanitarian aid. And it's very difficult to provide humanitarian aid in the situation of militarization and, on the, and of um, uh, attempts of criminalizing this aid. Uh, attempts to uh, put charges on people for human smuggling, for instance, uh, and some of these uh, some of these interactions are particularly telling because, in my opinion, they legitimize the racial hierarchies at the border. So, uh, my own field note uh, is from our interaction uh, with the police when we were driving in the borderland area. We were stopped uh, by the police. Uh, the police didn't check our documents, but uh, the comment was. Um, as it reads, all of you Polish here, because if not, then we would have to check. And obviously, we looked Polish because we were all white women. In the car. Uh, the other one is uh, from uh, one of the activists, very active, very uh, experienced also, uh, and, and he was also checked by the police, <clears throat> uh, who briefly looked at the faces of the people in the car uh, and uh, commented like, thank you, I see that everyone looks fine, and that means everyone is white, uh, because it's not an innocent comment in that particular border area. Uh, the other thing uh, also uh, from the activist, the other one, um, 
that I managed to talk to. It was post-intervention. They were returning from the intervention. They were stopped by the territorial defense units. And uh, from the distance, they shouted at them, stop, stop, come here, come here, say something in Polish. So that's also a clear uh, sign of how um, ethnic national racial profiling uh, is happening on the borderland area. Uh, but this uh, um, spectacle of racialized border violence doesn't happen only at the border area, but also in other spaces. Uh, so here I want to give you an example of how um, the authorities uh, here, the border guards, try to put forward their narrative about who is the legitimate uh, right refugee and who is a bogus refugee. And here uh, it is an example from the lecture that uh, commandants of the Podlaski Border Guards Unit uh, gave um, um, at the University of Białystok uh, uh, at the opening of the academic year, uh, when he uh, says um, a lot of stuff, but few particularly interesting and troubling were referring to who is actually the refugee. So refugees are people who are reaching the neighboring country, safe, first safe country on their way. Uh, and here he gives an example of Ukraine and Poland, especially, but then also a neighboring Syria and Turkey or Somalia and Kenya. But generally he stresses that refugees are reaching the first safe territory, which is obviously not true. It doesn't um, reflect the reality either uh, in law or um, from empirical uh, research. And, uh, and this is the, uh, the border guard speaking. So supposedly the people who actually should know the law and should uh, not put forward the, the message that is uh, um, not, uh, not true according to the law and uh, it's actually simplifying the, uh, the situation. Um, and so going to the, um, to the, I have the same picture as Karen here, <laughs> um, moving forward to the uh, arrival of the Ukrainian uh, refugees, we also know that it's not uh, it's not exactly a rosy picture uh, because we've seen and witnessed a lot of problems with reception of international students fleeing Ukraine, especially students coming from African countries or Indian subcontinent. Uh, there's been also a lot of uh, instances of uh, documented <clears throat> uh, uh, discrimination and prejudice against the Ukrainian Roma. Uh, our colleagues who were documenting the reception of Ukrainian Roma in one of the reception centers uh, were uh, told to be careful out there in the Gypsy district. So uh, one of the part of the center was uh, uh, accommodating Roma, ref uh, Roma refugees and uh, there was a clear prejudice against them. It's one of the very many examples uh, of such, uh, mm, such prejudices and discrimination. Um, and uh, <clears throat> what it means <clears throat> Sorry, um, I want to uh, I want to very quickly uh, mention a few things related to the picture on the right that already Karen said, so I will not repeat this, but uh, it has repercussions for other asylum seekers. It is this clear preference for gender and uh, for, for women, um, especially, and uh, whiteness also plays an important role here. Uh, so there's this, uh, this um, women and children uh, as an ideal refugee, preferably white women, and preferably from neighboring country, Christian country. Um, which is uh, uh, playing an important role here, I think. And um, uh, it has a repercussion for other refugees, especially men, especially coming from other contexts, uh, supposedly presenting them as a threat. And uh, this, uh, um, it, this is linked with the imagination of the masculinities, especially Muslim uh, men, who are presented as threatening, as uh, dangerous, as vi uh, violent and their culture those are also presented as irreconcilable with ours. So that's why uh, um, th that, that brings some serious repercussions for reception uh, for, uh, of, of other refugees, especially 
uh, not uh, corresponding with this ideal type. Um, and there's been also a shift in narrative uh, and, uh, and ongoing attempts at criminalizing the help that is happening on the border. Uh, here on the tweet on the right on the picture, you see uh, a few activists crossing the so-called border, border road in attempts to uh, deliver uh, stuff through the fence to the people who are on, this, uh, on the other side of the fence. And one of those uh, person was a German activist who was effectively removed from the Polish territory with the ban to enter Poland for the next five years. Um, and uh, the tweet says, reports of the border guards shows that some EU citizens and Polish activists do not understand what we are dealing with. The actions at the border are hybrid operation in line with Russia's aggression against the West. And it's clearly one thing, it's infantilizing and uh, uh, ridiculing activists as those uh, naive um, idealists uh, or just uh, idiots and traitors as once the Polish president says about them, uh, but also invisibilizing people on the move uh, or treating them instrumentally when it is useful. Uh, and then it is also Russia that comes to the fore, not Belarus anymore. Uh, Russia as an arch enemy, as the main architect of the crisis. And um, as I started, it is all quite the EU eastern border because whatever, um, like we have a lot of discussions, we have a lot of interventions. Uh, there's been also uh, cultural links that are in favor of the activists and are violating. Um, uh, or are uh, clearly saying that Poland is violating the rights of refugees. Uh, to apply for international protection, and it's also confirming that help is legal, that you cannot criminalize, criminalize help activities on the border. Yet, uh, despite all of this, uh, the policy of pushbacks continues. Uh, in the December uh, last year, Polish border guards admitted to 50,000 pushbacks, um, and the number is, uh, is uh, growing, uh, it's counting. And uh, just a very brief um, a mm, uh, few, few very brief information about uh, most recent development in this area uh, um, reported by the border group. Um, mm, uh, so the, the crisis continues in the sense that there are still people in the forest who are asking for help. In the last two months, there's been uh, more than 700 uh, uh, people asking for help uh, from, January, uh, from December to January. Um, almost 300 people reported more than 500 pushbacks, included also minors. Um, there's um, 317 people missing uh, until today. We know of 37 deaths. There's, been, there's probably more, but um, it's difficult uh, because of the difficulties in, in accessing the territories and also militarization of the area. It's difficult to actually search the area properly. Uh, there's been a reported violence from the Polish um, uh, forces of beating, pepper spraying, threats, taking away property, uh, clothes, food and phones. And phones are essential in this context. Um, and uh, only in March, that comes from the border guards reports on Twitter because they communicate uh, very actively on Twitter. Uh, only in, uh, in this last uh, eight days, there's been over 500 attempts to cross the border. Um, uh, in uh, unauthorized spaces, uh, and uh, um, basically that means that the crisis is ongoing, the policies are not changing, despite the court ruling that uh, are openly uh, saying that, okay, whatever uh, is happening, the pushbacks are illegal, and you cannot criminalize activists. It doesn't change the reality on the ground uh, uh, um, for now, so that's, that's, that, will be, um, that will be it for now, so I, I'm happy to answer any questions if they come later in the discussion. Thank you. 
Thank you, Camilla. That was fantastic. Um, so now I'm just mindful of the time. I'm going to go to Cinder to look at the situation here in the UK. What trends or shifts have you seen in terms of public attitudes or narratives towards refugees since the war in Ukraine? Yeah, th thanks for thanks for inviting me to to be to be at this and for, and for the question. Um, British Future, just for people who don't know it, um, non-partisan charity. We're interested in an inclusive, confident, welcoming. Britain, and that means we want to engage with people who are already confident about migration change and diversity and with people who aren't, and to look whether there is more common ground and broader coalitions for, for playing our role um, in the world and having confidence in how we do so. And um, there have been really important shifts um, uh, in this period, but the, the broad answer to the exam question we were given, will, will the crisis reshape the European narrative? Mm. Basically, the answer is no. Um, it will have lots of impacts, but it won't reshape the European narrative, because we've already heard from Poland, there isn't a European narrative. There are global trends and crises. There are continent-wide events, and the, this war is as big as 1989 and 9-11, the continent-wide event. And then there are national discourses mm -hmm. and national politics, and the Polish case is very exceptional, and the British case is very exceptional. And there may be some overlaps between the French and the Swedish and the Polish and Danish cases and so on, but there are national discourses. Mm -hmm. And then there are local experiences that inform or inflect the national discourse. And I think the UK is another outlier case in the way we talk about Immigration. This this episode this year has been part of a roller coaster ride mm. for how Britain thinks and talks about immigration and refugees. This week is part of a roller coaster ride. You've got the toughest ever legislation that, if passed, would actually more or less abolish um, the refugee convention mm. just ahead of the anniversary of the Homes for Ukraine scheme, when actually more people have been involved in refugee protection in Britain than ever before, that started a few weeks before the government announced that maybe deporting people to Rwanda was its policy. So the toughest ever mm. policies and the biggest ever welcoming initiatives going together. Mm -hmm. But that, that set of dichotomies um, is set in something else for post-Brexit Britain and how we think about it. Britain chose Brexit 52% to 48% and wouldn't have done so without a loss of public confidence in the government's handling of the scale and pace of migration, particularly economic migration by that time, you know, including um, from Poland, where people were rather positive, actually, in Britain, most people were rather positive about the contribution of Poles to British society, but they were rather negative about British governments mm. and how they'd managed and handled that experience of change fairly for local places. And it wouldn't quite have been 52, 48 if that hadn't happened. And then something surprising happened in the World Values Survey, um, as with some of the shifts in Poland. Britain is now an outrider in international comparisons for pro-migration mm. public attitudes. It's jumped to the other end of the space, and it's very complicated as to why that's happened. There have been several different shifts. The salience is much lower, even with all the politics right now. 12% of people think immigration generally is a is a is a is a real, is a top priority issue, or a top three priority issue. That was at 40 and 50, 2014, 2016. So it's coming back, but it's coming back from having hit its lowest level. There's more confidence in the economic contribution, more confidence in the cultural contribution, a softening of attitudes to refugees in general, people fleeing war and persecution. But also the other shift is that it's much less one size fits all. Because one thing that happens if you tell yourself you've got control is you need to decide what to do about it. And the question becomes less, 
yes or no, or free movement or not. The question becomes, what's your policy for your health service workers? What's your policy for skills or students or people who pick fruit or your refugee policies for different crises or your asylum policy? And for the public and for the politicians, you have to make more differentiated choice. So it brings out the differentiation. Is that differentiation problematic? We've heard some examples of how it might be problematic. It can be helpful, actually, to take migration out of being a yes or no question into what choices do we want to make. So different people have changed their minds for different reasons. There's a sense of catharsis. Lots of people who say, I'm not even allowed to talk about this issue. It's hard to say that at this point in time. There's a sense of control from some people because Brexit has given you a new system. There's a sense of regret from other people, people who didn't want Brexit have sort of you know radicalized the other way and want their country back. And there's um and there's more polarization around the issues of asylum, partly because what there is is much more consent now for managed openness. Um and the Ukraine uh refugee scheme is managed openness and people wanted to do more and people trusting the channel is clearly nobody's idea of a managed asylum system. They're dangerous journeys. So we've got these contradictions going on what do we what do we do with them and how do we try to um try to respond to them if we think about the host ukraine scheme which is introduced in the uk um three weeks after the invasion um the uk is struggling to make its contribution at that point because it's post-brexit britain so it's not part of just declaring that uh, people are open and people can come it's trying to use a visa-based scheme that is designed for study and work and so on for a, a war mm. and refugees from a war. And so there's a there's a there's a difficult moment there. Get to the end of the story, um, 165,000 Ukrainians have come to Britain. So when you look at what Poland has done, which is 10 times as high, you could say, well, there is a contribution, but you know, it's a it's a it's a relatively small share of the whole, and that's true. Um, it's also if you look at it through another lens the biggest group of people from any one country to come to Britain as refugees for over a century, not quite the biggest number ever, because the Belgians who fled the outbreak of the First World War uh, in 1914, a quarter of a million came, but it's the biggest since. And so very big and historic refugee flows to Britain that are iconic are much smaller than this one. So that's quite a quite an interesting perspective. And that means that more people in more places chose to do it. But there's something very important in how it was done, because um, I think uh, about 50,000 people came on a family scheme. And at first, there was only going to be a family scheme and another 20 or 30,000 people were given the right to stay because they were here as students, uh, temporary workers and so on. 100,000 people came through this scheme that was uncapped. But you would come if someone asked you to come <laughs> and made a match for you. And this inverts, actually, the anti-migration narrative of Britain, Britain's immigration discourse in the media and public for 50 years. Mm -hmm. so 50 years, people have been said, we were never asked. You know, Powell was right. Nobody wanted any of this. Governments, they don't listen to any of us. They just foist immigration on an unwilling public. And what happened last March and last April is that the public foisted refugee protection on a slightly cautious and unwilling government because because you had not just in the new statesman and the guardian but in the daily mail and the express people writing letters and writing columns saying i'm trying to get people to britain and the home office bureaucracy is getting in the way what is going on and so you had a complete inversion really of that of that story about the public um and, and migration um and it was it was innovative because it um it opened up the possibility to 
get more space where people could be accommodated. Mm -hmm. um, there was a debate in civic society, I mean, two debates. One is, is it right to do exceptional schemes for exceptional crises? And people are nervous about, um, you know, having a, a specific scheme, but also recognise there's a crisis and want there to be part of it. There was, there was a big controversy about should people get to match themselves? And people would say, oh, this is refugee policy by Tinder. You know, we don't want this. It's dehumanising. Um, if you want to do refugee protection at scale, that's a really good way for it to scale. Um, and it's actually, if you talk to um, people, you know, civil society, people from Ukraine, Ukraine working on this here, it's got more autonomy and power because the choice is both ways, actually. But if you were not doing that, you would have a list of, in a couple of departments, you'd have a list of 100,000 people in Britain who wanted to help. You'd have a list of, if you could find them, 30, 40, 50,000 7,000 people from Ukraine who wanted to come and someone would have to start matching them up and actually it's quite a positive thing if you want it scale for people to match up because they can make a connection or find a connection as long as there's services for people who can't to try and put them together so it's actually it's actually quite a positive thing mm. to do that and I think we should test our um, doubts um, about it but we were able to innovate because um, there was extremely strong public support political support media support across a broad spectrum to do it I think the debate we're having today is when we do exceptional things, does it create higher barriers? Or can we use a crisis, do something well, and broaden the circle of support? And being against anything we do in a crisis misses the point that we innovate in crises. And then the question is, can you broaden or do you sharpen when you do it? And that's particularly clear in the UK, because we've had three crises responses in two years. So when China had a crackdown in Hong Kong, one of the biggest decisions of post-Brexit Britain was to say to millions of people in Hong Kong, of course, you're welcome to post-Brexit Britain. <laughs> of course, we want a large flow of immigration because that had something to do with us. Um, it's not a racial uh, 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 synergy between Hong Kongers, East Asian Hong Kongers and British people, but it's something to do with us because we were part of that deal. So 150,000 people have come in two years, extremely quiet, one of the largest waves in history with unanimous political support in the House of Commons. There are different reasons if you're a Liberal Democrat or Scottish Nationalist or a right-wing Conservative, you might think that's good. Afghanistan, we were not expecting the fall of Afghanistan, so we scrambled to have an evacuation. 20,000 people um, uh, came out and the resettlement programme has really, has really struggled. And there was a very strong feeling among the British public that that had quite a lot to do with us. Um, the, the war in Afghanistan and what happened and specifically uh, there was anger if people who had a connection to the British state, the British armed forces were not, the debt of honour was not repaid. So there was general concern for, you know, women in Afghanistan mm -hmm. or on the human rights ground, <coughs> a specific obligation that you shouldn't let down people to you had a debt of honour. So again, the exceptionalism is doing something broadening as well as something tightening. So how do we do this now? How do we link up these these crises. I think, I think we need to invent a, a standing mechanism that can flex to the crises and that can be used at times when there aren't crises. We shouldn't, we shouldn't project onto the people who've stood up to help that, you know, maybe there's something exceptional or narrow about why they helped in this crisis. This was the first time people in Britain had had a chance to do something like this. I think if you go to your synagogue or your church or your mosque, you will hear about opportunities. There's been community sponsorship for Syrians and a thousand people came in four or five years, but you have to put a lot of work in, you have to know quite a lot about it. When the call went out, there was just, you know, it was never marketed because 
uh, you know, well over 100,000 people stepped forward, you know, in the first days. So making that offer there, making it possible to do something for contact and welcoming with groups if you haven't got a spare room, there's a real opportunity to build that. And the reason we should really lean into this moment, I think, is that if you wanted to broaden the confidence, whether in Britain or any other country, of um, refugee support, which is generally warming, but very polarised and very choppy, you want to broaden the political, social, and especially the geographical basis of support, because we've got very, very strong support for migration and refugees in highly diverse big cities among younger people, but the politics of that doesn't, doesn't get you, you know, what you want in a parliament. If you have people stepping up in Birmingham, Manchester, and London, and in Cornwall, and Norfolk, and Cumbria, to do their bit in their place because they decide to do it, it has a potential to transform uh, the medium term and the longer term attitudes. Um, one piece of evidence um, that um, more in common are doing some research about this, people who would like to host again, seven out of ten of them say they wish they could do something for Afghans mm -hmm. as well as Ukrainians. And so most people who stepped up are worried that we don't have policies that mm -hmm. work for all groups and the group that would only help Ukrainians. It does exist, but it's more the margins of when 70% support goes to 90% support rather than um, something that we have to worry about. So there are opportunities in our national discourses. And I think we can learn from the opportunities, but we also have to reflect that the Polish debate, the British debate, the French debate is very much rooted in the politics and history of that country. Thank you so much. So um, I'm going to go to Lincoln now. Um, so we made the excellent point that there's not one you know, universal European narrative. So I was wondering if you could talk a bit about the different narratives we're seeing in Europe about how um, towards refugees and how Ukrainian situation has shaped those. Thank you, Megan, and thank you, ODI, for inviting me to be part of this very interesting panel today. Uh, so as has been said a few times already today, uh, migration has been a salient issue in many European countries for years now. And uh, it has also been a, quite a divisive issue at, uh, even at the European level. So there has been quite a lot of conflict between different member states especially after the so-called migration crisis in 2015. Um, the, it, it kind of grew into a European institutional crisis, especially between the new member states and the old member states, when the, um, uh, the Visegrad group countries uh, refused to be part of the resettlement scheme uh, for, uh, for the refugees from mostly Syria. And uh, this was also reflected in the public opinion of these countries. Um, uh, as we can see here, so for example, these are data from uh, 2018, and uh, at the top, these are the least welcoming countries among EU member states, and uh, we see that the least welcoming country is my own, the Czech Republic, and uh, we uh, followed by Slovakia and Hungary, and we also see Poland quite at the top, so um, uh, th this has been uh, quite a stable uh, think uh, in the in the years after 2015, but uh, last year after the Russian invasion of Ukraine, we have seen politicians uh, very well known for their anti-migration stance till that uh, day. So, for example, also Matteo Salvini, who was flying to Poland, uh, Viktor Orban, who uh, in March 2022 was saying that all the Ukrainians are welcome to Hungary. So we have seen quite a remarkable shift at the governmental level towards Ukrainian refugees. 
And uh, not only that, but we, it seemed that even the publics of these countries, especially in the Visegrad group countries, uh, have been quite welcoming to Ukrainian refugees, people hosting them in their own uh, homes, uh, people going to the border with their own cars to, to bring uh, the Ukrainians uh, from Ukraine. Uh, to their countries and so on and so forth. So uh, against this backdrop, uh, we at the Migration Policy Center decided to conduct our own survey in eight European countries, uh, all of the countries bordering Ukraine except Moldova and uh, also the Czech Republic, which uh, actually in, uh, at the pro capita has one of the highest number of Ukrainian refugees. And then uh, Germany, Italy, and Austria, which, uh, which also have quite a large uh, Ukrainian uh, diaspora and already had them. And also very kind of traditional destination countries uh, of migration before the war in Ukraine. And uh, here, these are the first results. When we asked, in our survey, we asked uh, respondents, uh, it was actually uh, in each country, we had around a uh, thousand respondents on a nationally representative sample of the adult population. Uh, and uh, so we had around 8,000 uh, respondents in total in these eight countries. And uh, here you can, we asked them about uh, their opinions, whether they would allow Ukrainian refugees to come and live in their country. Uh, we also ask them uh, their opinion about the satisfaction with how the government uh, is handling the Ukraine situation and so on and so forth. And uh, as you can see, uh, there's an overwhelming support uh, for Ukraine refugees in most countries, even in Slovakia, which in this case is the most negative country, only around 12% uh, of uh, Slovaks would not allow any Ukrainian refugees to come and live in their country, which is quite a low number. Um, uh, on the other hand, we do see that uh, in the, most of the countries, people would like some sort of control of the numbers, which is reflected in uh, the answers that they would allow a few or some Ukrainians to come. So it's not an overwhelming allow everyone to come in, but uh, especially in the, again in the Visegrad countries, but uh, there is some need for a certain level of control, but uh, it's quite uh, positive overall. What we also did in our uh, survey is something uh, in social science we called a survey experiment. Uh, what this means is that our sample is divided randomly into two groups and each of the two groups is asked uh, a slightly different question. And since uh, the respondents are uh, divided really randomly, we are sure that there is no significant difference between the two groups. So it's not just uh, women and men, or so it's, it's very random. And, uh, in this way, we can actually claim uh, some causal effect uh, because there is uh, no other characteristics that distinguishes the two groups between themselves. And uh, our survey experiment asked, one group was asked about Ukrainian refugees specifically, whereas the other group was actually asked about the Syrian refugees specifically. And um, here are the results. And as you can see, there's quite a lot of difference uh, between the two groups, especially in the Visegrad group countries. So as I was saying previously, only 12% in Slovakia, the most negative country against Ukrainians would not allow any uh, Ukrainian refugees. It's almost a third of Czechs who would not allow any at all of Syrian refugees. Uh, on the other hand, we see that, for example, Germany and Italy do not distinguish as much between the two groups as do countries in the, in the Visegrad group, mostly. So, so what this means is that there is quite 
it, the, the, this welcoming attitudes depends. We we can tell we can say that very much depends on who is the refugee group actually, especially in the Visegrad group countries. And um, we also wanted to dig a little bit deeper. Uh, so we looked at factors that might affect uh, people's attitudes towards refugees. And for those of you who are not familiar with this type of analysis, this is uh, ordered logistic regression. And what this figure represents is that every factor or everything that is listed that is on the right hand side of the red line means that it's positively associated with allowing uh, refugees in the country. So for instance, you, uh, you can tell that uh, people who have higher education uh, would allow more Ukrainian refugees, uh, but you can also, and everything that touches the red line is not statistically significant. Uh, so you can also tell that uh, education does not play a role overall uh, in the acceptance of Syrian refugees. And everything that is on the left-hand side from the red line actually means that it's negatively associated. So for some, it might be a little bit surprising, but for example, female respondents are significantly less likely to allow both Ukrainian and Syrian refugees uh, into the country that uh, male respondents. Uh, age does not seem to play any role. Uh, as I was saying, education is only uh, significant in the case of the Ukrainian refugees. Uh, we also see that people who uh, feel that subjectively uh, they have difficulties with their income are much uh, more less likely to want any type of refugees to come into their country, whereas uh, income as an objective measure actually does not play any role. Um, and people who live in, in big cities are uh, significantly more likely to want refugees to come into their country. And uh, slightly surprisingly, employed people are less likely to want uh, refugees to come. Um, so uh, we also were a little bit uh, puzzled from uh, the fact that why is there such a difference uh, between Ukrainian and Syrians, as I was presenting before, and our hypothesis has been that one of the main reasons uh, we see for this differentiation between uh, between the two groups is in the Visegrad group countries is the perception of Russian threat. So, uh, as you can see here, and the logic again of this figure is the same as was in the previous slide. Uh, as you can see from here, so uh, when when you consider Russia to be a threat to your country. Uh, for instance, uh, in Germany, this leads to uh, you allowing both refugee groups, both Ukrainians and Syrians, to want um, you want them to come to your country. Whereas in uh, most uh, of the Visegrad group, this is true only for Ukrainians and those who perceive Russia as a threat to their country, they would still not allow. Uh, Syrians to come in. So, so we, uh, we interpret this as the kind of a historical legacy uh, and, and uh, as one of the reasons why Ukrainians have been so welcomed in these countries in the past year, uh, because there is an overwhelming feeling of uh, we, we have a historical, ex similar historical experience uh, from the past. Uh, there might also be some uh, sort of solidarity in the sense uh, we might be next. Uh, also, the number of uh, passport applications have risen a lot uh, by 200% in most of these countries after the Russian invasion and so on and so forth. What is a little bit interesting is, for example, Poland, where uh, if you feel Russia is a threat to your country, you would uh, allow significantly more um, Ukrainian refugees and you would 
uh, not allow any Syrian refugees and how uh, we interpret this uh, is uh, something that Kamal was actually talking about uh, as uh, somehow Russian involvement in the crisis in the on the Belarusian border. So uh, so many respondents might feel that uh, uh, Belarusia connected to Russia. This is somehow uh, a Russian responsibility also uh, of this humanitarian crisis that Kamal was talking about. Uh, so uh, these are the preliminary result of our survey, and I'm looking forward to, for, uh, forward to the questions. Yes, yes, I'm looking forward to the questions as well. So um, we'll have a microphone here if you want to ask any questions um, here in the room, um, and also you can put your questions if you're joining us online in the chat, and they'll be sent out to me. Um, yes. <laughs> And please say your name and the organization that you're from. Hi, Lewis from the FCDO. Um, yeah, thanks so much for everyone's contribution. It's been really fascinating so far. Um, this has been touched upon slightly, but I need to ask you more from the kind of UK angle. Um, when there's negative arguments around migration in the UK, they usually focus on men, men in small boats, men coming here to take jobs, etc. We all know where they're going with this. Um, whereas it's kind of common knowledge that the Ukrainian refugees are even kind of almost impossible to be young men because of the needs of fighting a war. So I was wondering if there'd been any data or studies linking our um, willingness to accept refugees from Ukraine and our kind of open armedness to that, um, to the fact that people also subconsciously are aware that there's very unlikely to be kind of a male dominated um, uh, group. Yeah. Do you want to take yeah. any thoughts on that? Oh, it's quite interesting. We've just seen that gender is a distinction where women are being slightly less supportive in the European study. And the UK data at the moment is the opposite mm -hmm. of that. Um, uh, uh, not just on Ukraine, but actually just generally. And there's never really been a gender gap in um, attitudes to migration. It's much less important than place, geography and politics. Women are more sympathetic, for example, to the men crossing the channel if it's mostly men, than men are at the moment. And there's complicated things going on there that women historically in Britain have been more right-leaning than left-leaning, but now are more left-leaning than right-leaning and women are about to work and women get degrees. So there's a complicated thing going on, but at the moment there's more empathy from women for groups that are majority male, as well as for groups that are majority female than from men. So there's a broader politics underpinning that. I think, I think on those narratives, the really important thing to know about the sort of the very polarised debate, so we've got a very unifying debate about Ukraine. We've got an incredibly polarising debate about um, boat crossings and um, Rwanda and so mm -hmm. on. And the Rwanda scheme was now proposed a year ago, and you can spin it lots of different ways and you can shift the plurality for it or against it. There's never been a single poll that's found a majority for that scheme. And there's never been a single poll that's found a majority against it either. So it's not as popular as the government would want, and it's not as unpopular as maybe the Archbishop and uh, the Garden newspaper would want either. And there's a reason for that, because those very polarised debates are making people pick a side, which is, do you want to be on team control, toughness and deterrence, or do you want to be on team compassion and humanity? And about a third of the population offered that choice, so two thirds actually can pick their side. And we can have a debate between mm -hmm. the two thirds about your language and your language and what you're doing. And a lot of people really dislike that choice mm -hmm. because you're saying if you want to manage asylum, you've got to be really tough and maybe a bit nasty. Um, and what they're saying is, can't I have competent, can't I have control and compassion? 
that's what I'd want. That's sort of government did that. And those those narratives that are very, say, racialized or very much about, you know, threat perceptions and so on, they're going to trigger a particular group, one quarter, and they're going to repel another mm. quarter. And we're stuck with that. And so I think we've got to work really hard at um, at the sort of control versus compassion. How do you manage it well? How do you build your confidence? And I think I think that plays a lot, I think, to this broader conversation that's a big theme today, which is what do we do about these distinctions? If the median citizen in Germany is take many Ukrainians and take some Syrians, and the median citizen everywhere else is take, take some Ukrainians and take a few Syrians, do we just say you're totally wrong to ever differentiate? Or do we say, okay, you want to take a few and you want to take some, you want to take some, you want to take many. Let's show you how that can how that can work. So the answer to the sort of young men issue is to is to sort of personalise, localise the experience of, of contact with that group and whether or not you feel they can contribute to your society. Any other questions? Yes. Um, my name is uh, Maria Gruwich and I'm a postdoc researcher from Europe, European University of Viadrini in Germany. Um, but I live in London, that's why I'm here. Um, this is was really fascinating, uh, taking um, to uh, to think about uh, the uh, first results of the survey, but it as well results of uh, uh, media analysis in Poland for a gender lens, mm -hmm. uh, because this uh, what. So my question is, do we? Um, uh, on one hand, uh, we can see that uh, women's political agency is obviously under-researched because we don't understand enough why uh, women either tend to be more welcoming or to be less welcoming. Uh, and on the other hand, we have this very strong vulnerability stereotype that enforce narratives of welcoming because through these women and children as ideal refugee perspective. So my question would be how, uh, maybe to all panelists, and you can see who can first pick up on the question, how we can um, understand better uh, women's uh, political um, agency in this context and to overcome this um, vulnerability stereotype in the uh, analysis of refugee welcoming, because this seems to be somehow one of the uh, pressing questions at the moment, because we just don't understand uh, where this comes from. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Karen, do you have any thoughts on that? I was really struck by the magazine covers that you showed in your presentation, um, and the one with the, the European woman being manhandled, and, and so I wonder if you had any thoughts about the idea of, of um, gender and and how this plays into it yeah absolutely I think as you say I think that's a very striking magazine cover with the headline that translates as along the lines of the Islamic rape of Europe and you know the sort of idea that was very heavily put forward and present in dominant narratives in 2015 sort of under the kind of threat lens of Muslim men being sexually aggressive towards European women and sort of how that and the, that particular headline was sort of drawing on events, I think, I believe in Cologne and reporting around that and yeah, and how that sort of then was portrayed in the po Polish media really as kind of vindicating the sort of narrative that these sort of sexually aggressive young men from the Middle East were coming to rape or attack Polish women. I think, I mean, I think it's a really fascinating question. And I think particularly I think what 
I think what's interesting in Poland is how gender from 2015, really, I think, played into this broader picture that was kind of set up primarily by the Law and Justice Party, but also echoed in sort of, you know, very, you know, prominent mainstream media outlets of the sort of genuine or deserving refugee that was sort of deserving of assistance. And gender was sort of one part of that, but there's sort of lots of, you know, the sort of gendered assumption that the, that women are vulnerable and the sort of genuine refugee is vulnerable and needy and visibly poor. So gender was part of that, but also there were sort of lots of pictures of young men at the border in sort of, you know, presentable looking clothing and on smartphones and sort of how that was all part of this image that was constructed around that time. And I think it's sort of, I guess it's sort of, it's interesting to see how that then played out sort of in the context of refugees from Ukraine. And sort of as on the one hand, as I sort of mentioned earlier, that there is this stereotype that's been sort of played into and, you know, due to conscription in Ukraine and due to that how sort of refugees coming to, to Poland and elsewhere have predominantly been women. And this sort of idea of, you know, really playing on that kind of in government communications and border sort of communications playing on that vulnerability but I think it's also interesting how some of those kind of ideas and notion of the sort of genuine deserving refugee have also filtered into the sort of less prominent narratives that exist sort of against Ukrainian refugees and I think they're you know by no means the the mainstream but sort of I think reports on social media and people talking about Ukrainians driving fancy cars or Ukrainians taking up free tickets to Warsaw Zoo and sort of, you know, having fun and enjoying themselves and how they kind of fell outside that sort of image that had been constructed since 2015 of, of the genuine needy, vulnerable refugee. So I think it's, I think gender is a really interesting part of that. But I think, I guess my long answer here is that I think it's interesting to also broaden out that lens and look at how that sort of plays into this, why in the context of Poland, but I think that's equally true elsewhere, how that plays into sort of why a wider picture of you know who is or isn't deserving of assistance. Mm -hmm. um, I I do want to put it to the other panelists, but I just don't want to, I'm wary of time, so I just want to make sure can we I, do other questions. Can I just add something to yes, um, yeah, uh, thank you. So um, to adding something to, to what Karen said, um, and the gender thing, uh, so not only the, um, the women's political agency, agencies under research, but also men political agency uh, is interesting here. And um, uh, so one thing is this uh, feminist picture of the refugee deserving and, uh, and needy, that is also taking away the agency of this uh, from these people, from these women, um, especially like saying that, that you should just sit and suffer, not enjoy yourself in the world, so zoo or elsewhere. Uh, so it's just you know taking away the agency from the people, uh, and it's very patronizing uh, towards them also. But the other thing is related to masculinity, and also in my research, it um, it comes up quite uh, quite frequently, um, especially uh, referring to 2015-16 so-called refugee crisis. And this discourse of defense, uh, defending Europe uh, against the Islamic threat, 
uh, and Islamization, as I, as I put it in my first slide. And that's very masculine uh, narrative, very uh, like mobilizing all those uh, masculine ideals of defense, of fighting for the homeland. And that very much links into the Polish national um, you know, history and narrative about the, the state, the protecting the state's sovereignty, uh, and then protecting Europe against whatever comes. Uh, so kind of uh, mobilizing this clash of civilization discourse, um, reaching out to historical examples, the siege of Vienna, uh, you know, the, the, the basically uh, Poland is anti-morale uh, and is protecting Europe against Islamization. It's Christian country as Europe is Christian also. So it's kind of uh, mobilizing this kind of narratives. And uh, as I said, it's very masculine this discourse. Um, it's also uh, very much linked to defense and uh, and, uh, and violence. So we are defending but against their violence. Uh, so that's that's something important. And in context of migration, especially in Polish migration to the UK, when I did my work on Polish men living in in, in the UK and their um, um, and their perspectives of the you know how society that they're that they're living. Uh, it was very interesting to note that very many of them were in favor of Brexit, of taking back control against them because we belong, because we are European, we are white, we are Christian. Uh, they do not belong because of reasons. And one of the reasons was that, um, uh, I'm not sure if you remember, there was a moment that uh, in the public media there was a lot of discussion about Polish women giving birth um, in, in the UK um, uh, and the, the rising birth rates of Polish women in the UK then in Poland uh, and there was a discussion but you know who is the father of those children and the fathers are not Polish the fathers are from other countries and not necessarily white British uh, so there's also gender discussion about who is um, mm, uh, who's entering the interesting relationships and uh, as it happens uh, Polish women were more um, frequently entering interesting relationships than Polish men. And there was also very gender discussion of who owns the women in inverted commas, of course. And that's also, uh, it was very, um, very vivid, very, uh, very fierce discussion in the, in the, uh, on, on the internet, in the public media, uh, and also very present in my uh, research experience with the men who were uh, feeling that, okay, being abroad, being living in, in England, they actually compete with other men, um, racialized masculinities of, you know, Muslim men uh, for Polish women. And it was also quite, quite important in that context, how they felt that their social status is lower. They're less attractive socially as a partner to Polish women, not to mention British women. And so uh, that also played, an, uh, played a role here. So that's why I also mentioned about this uh, transnationally mobilized uh, is, um, uh, Islamophobia that was, uh, that was quite, uh, quite um, that, that was my observation from from the research. Thank you. Um, I'm going to take a question from online. So this is from Katerina Mazzilli from ODI. She thanks all the presenters for their work. Um, and she has a question for Lenka. I was wondering if you could say a bit more on countries that perceive Russia as a threat, still not welcoming Syrian refugees. Is this because they do not perceive Syrians as part of a common past and story, as you mentioned in relation to Ukrainians, or the other factors as well? Yes. So uh, our hypothesis is exactly uh, is exactly that because, for instance, at least in the in the um, this is the reason why we do not see 
the difference in uh, Western European countries, such as Germany or Italy, if you perceive Russia as a threat, you would be welcoming both Ukrainians and Syrians, whereas in the Visegrad group, uh, it's, it's not so. And uh, there are a few reasons. One, uh, one is that although, and, and this is actually the reason why we picked Syrians, although uh, this has been displayed for a violent conflict and also where also Russia was involved, that there, uh, the Russian involvement is not very clear in the sense who is uh, on the wrong side or who is on the right side. Whereas with the Ukrainian case, it's mm -hmm. very clear that there's the, the heroes and the, the victim and, and the perpetrator and the aggressor. So, uh, and uh, this is much clearer in the public discourse of the Visegrad group countries. And, and we can see that when, whereas when you look at the public debates in, in Italy or in Germany, this has not been uh, such a polarized debate mm -hmm. in, in uh, also, when uh, even in uh, when you go to these countries, for instance, in in uh, the Czech Republic or Poland, you always see Ukrainian flags on state buildings. Whereas in Italy, you always see peace uh, flags. You never see Ukrainian flags. So, so it's a it's a quite different discourse where we are for peace. Whereas in 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 these Visegrad countries, oh, we are for Ukraine. Mm -hmm. So, uh, so this might um, might play also quite a lot of role. And uh, as I was saying, the. Uh, the, the Russian invasion to Ukraine reminded many people uh, of their own country's historical experience. We have Russian invasion uh, in 68 uh, of the Czechoslovakia. We have uh, Poland and Russia always uh, battling <laughs> against each other. We have we have uh, Russia invading Hungary in 56. So uh, so uh, these experiences that countries in uh, in the West did not have. Mm uh we we see why there is this difference but we also see that uh the for syrians in in these countries this would not be they it's not perceived that russia actually invaded syria so there, we we know there is some involvement but we don't know what what uh, on what side russia is standing is it the good one or is it the bad one and uh so uh so it's not so dichotomized and and i think this is the reason why why people when they think of ukrainians then then there's this clear uh mm -hmm. russian perception and but not with the syrians yeah that's fascinating um can i come in on that as well just very quickly yes. i think that's something that also came out very clearly in um our research and I think I think basically I think there's two very interesting questions there to kind of get to get to the answer so I think there's sort of perhaps it's helpful to separate out so I think there's the question of what you know why have positive narratives had so much traction when it comes to Ukrainian and then the sort of separate question of why negative narratives have had so much traction when it comes to other groups so for example Syrians. And I think it I think the answers to both of those questions are closely connected, but also I think it's helpful to separate them out. And I think what what really I mean, again, in our research, it, it really came out so strongly, similarly to in Lenka's about just how much in the context of Poland it matters that it's Russia who's in the invader in the context of Ukraine. It just, you know, for many, many historical reasons, you know, what that means, the cultural memory in Poland and the significance of the fact that it's Russia threatening Ukraine's territorial identity and sovereignty as Poland has experienced in the past and sort of through centuries. But I think basically, I think in both of those questions, it really does come down to what we know from sort of wider public attitudes research in terms of how attitudes to immigration, refugees intersect with sort of underlying values and worldviews that people have and you know, very importantly within that sort of underlying views of 
cultural insiders and outsiders. And I think in the case of Ukraine, there is just this sort of very strong reason why Ukrainians in countries like Poland, but I think also, as Lenka mentioned, more, more broadly, sort of tick a lot of boxes in terms of being cultural insiders. And part of that is sort of common history with Russian in the region and sort of many, many other factors, for example, in the context of Poland, the sheer number of Ukrainians that were already in Poland before last year and the level of contact between Poles and Ukrainians. So I think there's I think there's two basically these sort of two intertwined questions here. But I think it's it's very helpful to sort of bring it back to, I think, sort of how that relates to who's perceived as a cultural insider or outsider. Yeah, definitely. Thank you. So we're almost out of time. So I'm going to end on a quick fire question to each speaker. I'm going to give you two minutes each. So I'm going to be very harsh on the, the time. Um, but based on the discussions today and your research, what opportunities exist to harness the public and political support for Ukrainian refugees that can then influence the broader narratives to other groups across Europe? So I'm going to start um, with Karen. Two minutes. Oh, you're on mute. Uh, sorry. So I think in the context of Poland, I think what is helpful, I think, is to really sort of look at where there may be openings in public opinion, sort of broaden that out. I sort of didn't get the chance to in the time we had to cover this earlier. But if we look at sort of polling on the situation on the Poland-Belarus border, you know, I think bringing it back to the point that Cinder made around in the UK around sort of control versus compassion, actually there are elements of that polling that sort of point to a majority of polls who potentially would favour a compassionate approach. So, for example, one survey found that over seven in 10 supported access to the border for the media, but also for humanitarian organisations, whereas, as Camilla mentioned, cutting off access for humanitarian organisations was a key part of the government's response. So I think that's something interesting to, to think about, whether there could be a majority of of polls who might be sort of occupying more of a middle ground or sort of you know in favor of an approach similar to as Cinder mentioned in the UK sort of that would balance control and compassion so I think trying to really understand that in the context of Poland is important and then thinking about messages that might connect with those groups um, I think that there's I think there's lots of reasons why positive attitudes towards Ukrainians you know why people have been so lots of reasons behind that which are very unique and difficult to replicate with other groups so sort of you know thinking about the role of Russia that we've talked a lot about but I think there is this common thread of the Polish public and their efforts to welcome Ukrainians so I think in the context of Poland I think I'd really just come back to base here to explore what that response to Ukrainians means you know thinking less about talking less about refugees but more about Poles and Polish society and what that response means for Poland as a sort of welcoming, compassionate nation who's been who are able to mobilize so rapidly and effectively in response to Ukrainians. So yeah, those that that would be my quick fire answer. I'll pass on to whoever's next. Camilla, same question to you. What opportunities are there? Um, <laughs> um thank you Karen for uh already introducing already answering this question partly, but I'm also very pessimistic how we can change this uh, in the sense that um, there, there's like two, um, how to say, 
uh, I'm trying to, to um, think about, and I'm not sure if that makes sense. Uh, so there are like two parallel developments. Uh, on the one hand, Poland mobilized also European uh, um, public opinion, uh, mobilizing support for Ukrainian refugees. And at the same time, Poland is openly uh, in conflict with uh, uh, European uh, or international humanitarian law. And that also um, is related to the ongoing conflict of the government with Brussels regarding various issues, judiciary system in Poland, so on and so forth. So uh, those developments are parallel and uh, um, and very, very um, there's a limited uh, chance for discussing the refugee assistance uh, that would uh, actually um, challenge the um, the government stance on the Belarus uh, on the Belarusian border and uh, people coming through the border and also public opinion. And I think what we will see coming is actually a very ugly um, uh, political campaign uh, because we will have the election uh, this autumn uh, and that will again probably mobilize the, the public opinion forward uh, towards supporting the, the Ukrainian refugees and then uh, firm stance and uh, against the uh, uh, supporting or changing the policy on the Polish-Belarusian border, uh, because uh, yeah, there's this um, there's this narrative then again that it is Russia who is behind that crisis on the border, and so we cannot actually show our weakness. We show our strength by supporting Ukrainian refugees. We show our strength by uh, stopping the border, uh, stopping people on the border with Belarus. So um, I'm very. <laughs> And I'm very pessimistic about the possibilities to change this and to influence the public opinion differently. Also, because a lot of a lot of message that comes from the mainstream media and politicians regarding the Belarusian border, it's difficult to challenge this, right? And difficult to and there's a huge polarization of the society also regarding these issues and also lack of awareness about how. And the, the humanitarian uh, law uh, works and how people have right to access uh, uh, the procedure uh, and uh, how this right is taken away from them. Sorry, I'm just going to stop you there just because I'm mindful of time, but sure. thank you. Um, so no, thank you. Opportunities. Yes, I'm going to be optimistic in very heated, polarized times. There are big opportunities here in the medium term and the long term, and we could speed them up in the short term, mm -hmm. too, in the crisis response. But we have to challenge ourselves in this conversation. If you have a conversation that is sort of liberal in mm -hmm. civil society and academia and is basically wanting, great thing, expand the circle of concern, worried about prejudice and exceptionalism, differentiation, we don't really, I think, have a good enough strategy to navigate that mm -hmm. that doesn't involve preaching to the converted, the people who wouldn't want there to be a differentiation, and failing then to think about how that balance of middle is engaged in the conversation about how to widen the circle of concern. And we might sound like we're calling everybody hardline xenophobes when we want to tackle the hardline xenophobes and anti-Muslim you know, narratives and prejudice being projected and take that broader middle into where maybe we could broaden the circle of concern. And if you don't get that right, if you don't say what's okay, what should be permitted, so it's actually, it's definitely okay to have a debate about whether there are challenges in integrating people from Syria into European societies, but you should never stereotype all Muslims just because they're Muslims and have a conversation about them they can't be part of. Then you talk to the middle as if you just say, anyone who's got a differentiation point is might be, you know, uh, going with the fascists, then you're missing the chance to have the conversation about how to get it right, because 
The challenge of broadening the circle of concern is to talk about how do people become us and how do we broaden more confidence the more people can become us. People, you know, my dad arrived in this country, didn't think that people like me could be us. People don't doubt that anymore, but a newer group, they might have the doubt. What speeds it up? Meaningful contact at scale, at pace, in a broader range of geographies. How would you speed that up? You'd institutionalize public contact, civic contact in welcoming and try to have the people doing it, not just being all of the people who are on our marches as well, but some of the people who don't come on our marches because they're, you know, training football matches or something on a Saturday morning, having a root in the yeah. active welcoming across groups. So institutionalised welcoming with a broad geography, open schemes for all groups and have a practical navigation of what are prejudices and what are preferences and work with the people who've got preferences but might still do a lot for one group and something for other groups as well. Hey, last but not least, thank you. Yes, so uh, although I actually do agree with uh, Karen and Camila that I think the Ukrainian situation is very specific and mm -hmm. in uh, particular, I'm going uh, to give it a little bit of more optimistic spin, or I try at least. Uh, so uh, social science research has shown uh, again and again that is the, the reason for anti-immigration or anti-refugees attitudes is the perception of threat, whether actual or perceived, uh, it doesn't matter. Uh, and uh, and this has been again a little bit uh, shown with the Ukrainian refugee crisis, at least in the Visegrad group countries, because all the reasons for feeling threat against them are mostly not present. So so uh, it's it's actually a genuine need to come. So so it uh, it it cannot be spin off as uh, these are coming to steal our jobs and so on and so forth. As we discussed today, it's uh, more, mostly women and and children. So people do not feel threatened by these uh, young man coming here to uh, as we discussed today steal our women or uh, rape our women and so on and so forth and also uh, people were already mostly familiar with ukrainians uh, because uh, they were lar the largest majorities in these countries even before the war so what this all shows is that there is actually hope uh, so the reasons why they might be so negative against for instance syrians is actually because they feel threatened because of the unknown they they do not have at least in these countries much more experience with with uh, people coming from these countries with a different religion we are looking differently and so on i mean we cannot forget that uh, these countries were closed for 40 years mm -hmm. uh, under communism so of course there was not that many opportunities as uh, there were in the uk to meet new cultures and, mm -hmm. and of course blend the societies much more multicultural so uh, so in this sense there is hope because in in the case that people actually can familiarize themselves with with also other types of uh, refugees or other people uh, the perception of threats should probably uh, go lower and, and then these attitudes might finally change. Thank you so much. So we're right, right at time. Um, we're going to wrap up here. I want to thank all of the panelists for the discussion today. Karen, Camilla, Cinder, Lenka, I think it's everyone can agree. It's very fascinating. Um, a recording of this event will be available on the ODI website within the next couple of days. Um, and thank you all for joining us here in person and online. Um, have a great day. Thank you very much.